0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 31. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, scientist by day, writer by night. In this podcast, I share my ongoing efforts to make the leap from writing hobbyist to writing professional. My goals are to write at least 550 words every day, and then share a piece of my fiction with you in this weekly podcast. So let's get right into this week's story. This week I'm bringing you the first half of Chapter 4 of Things Unseen, my second major novel in the world of Metamore City. If you're new to this podcast, go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detectives, Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf, have been chasing down a pair of especially thorny cases. First, a body showed up in their precinct that seemed to have been burned from the inside out by some kind of magical overload. They investigated the scene with the help of the Lightbringers, who suspect that there was some kind of involvement from supernatural outsiders. The Lightbringer CSI agent, Yansi Takahashi, examined the body at the scene. Where she was able to determine that the corpse had been picked over by one of the monsters that inhabit that section of the street. So far, though, the involvement of these supernatural predators appears to have been only tangential. There was no indication as to what had actually caused the man's death. MCPD medical examiner Morgan Drowling is currently working to identify the body. Her initial examination suggests that the victim may not be completely human, but she's running a DNA analysis to be sure. Meanwhile, Kate and David have been engaged in their second case, tracking down the infamous socialite Misty Halloway. Misty's father, Count Xavier Halloway, is the Minister of Imperial Intelligence, and he has deputized Kate and David as adjunct officers of the ministry in order to help them find Misty more effectively. Kate performed an augury at Misty's apartment, which showed her that Misty had gotten involved in some kind of risky venture with three of her friends, Sefi, Julia, and Zeke. Kate doesn't run in the social circles of the nobility, so she isn't sure who any of these people are. Fortunately, Morgan Drowling was raised in that world, so Kate decides to seek Morgan out for more information on Misty's co-conspirators. Things Unseen a Novel of Metamorph City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 4 Thursday, April 5th, 2000 Christos Reckoning Kate and Morgan sat in their favorite coffee shop, watching the television mounted in the back corner of the room, Kate sipped at her coffee and nibbled on a croissant as the vampire crime lord of Metamore City charmed his way through the morning news program. Understand, Amanda, this isn't about politics, Malcolm Ardvalos said, as he smiled genially for the television cameras. It's not about culture, or tradition, or class warfare. This is pure, fundamental economics. Sanctioned monopolies of any sort are inherently bad for business— and the economy suffers wherever they're enforced. The reporter leaned in close to Ardvalos, apparently unaware of how it exposed her cleavage to the camera. She was trying hard for an air of tough, professional objectivity, and not succeeding. Her hand unconsciously reached out to caress the vampire's arm, but she caught herself an instant before she made contact, and the hand flexed back out of reach. Mr. Ardvalos, your holding companies have a controlling interest in hundreds of businesses, in dozens of different industries. How is that any less of a monopoly than the ones owned by the noble houses? That's a very important question, Amanda, Ardvalos said. His tone was warm, laudatory, and the reporter's cheeks flushed at the praise. The difference comes down to government control. Does the company dominate its industry because of imperial fiat? or because it defeated its competitors in a free market. One produces stagnation and a sense of entitlement. The other produces strong, vigorous brands that can weather the storms of misfortune. The companies I invest in are successful because they have good people, who produce good products and services, and offer them to the public at a fair price. Morgan snorted. Because you use cheap overseas labor, she said to the television screen, and you bought the right politicians to lift the import restrictions. It's the free market that decided the winners, Ardvalos continued. If my company started to produce inferior products, and a competitor came along with something better, we'd have to change or risk dying out. Or you just buy them out in a hostile takeover, Kate said. The crime lord's expression turned grave. The problem with these noble houses is that they have exclusive rights and privileges that are given to no one else. Two-thirds of the land in Metamore City is tied up in these ancient fiefholdings that can't be transferred to anyone outside the noble houses to which they were granted. You could have a count or baron who is completely bankrupt, an absolute failure in the free market, and he'd still have that land because you couldn't force him to sell, because there's a thousand-year-old title that says it can't be taken from him. And it's the same thing with the utilities, and the ports, and anything else that's been given to a noble house through one of these imperial mandates. For as much as the Majestrix talks about fair and open markets, there's an astonishing amount of protectionism going on. And that's why you're lobbying for the government to open development in the Telvari Rift Zone? The reporter asked. Absolutely, Ardvalos said. The imperial economy is stagnating. Environmental regulations have restricted development. Wages are flat, but the cost of living is rising. The mining in the asteroid belt has given us plenty of metal, but with so little new development it's just driving down the price of ore and reducing profits. The Empire needs new opportunities for growth and expansion, and the Rift is the perfect place for it. Ugh, Kate said, turning away from the TV set. How can people not see that man for what he is? Morgan shrugged one slender shoulder. Most people don't have the inside knowledge you and I have. They see Malcolm Ardvalos, the world-famous investor, not Malcolm Ardvalos, the syndicate boss. Honestly, does he even look like a vampire? Kate looked up at the man on the screen, with his sharp, distinguished features, his bright and intelligent green eyes, his tanned and healthy-looking skin. He looked like a very fit man edging toward active maturity. Even the way his dark hair grayed at the temples only made him look more dignified. He looks like a very strong, very well-fed vampire, Kate said which is just another way of saying he doesn't look like a vampire at all, Morgan said dryly. She gestured at her own porcelain white skin. It will be a long time before I can disguise myself that well. You just need to learn some illusion magic, hun," Kate said. She made a few small gestures, called up a tiny amount of mana from her reserves, and touched the back of Morgan's hand. Immediately, her skin took on a rich, coffee-and-cream color that nicely complemented her dark hair and eyes. Morgan looked down at the glamour and sighed. "'It's lovely, darling, but I don't have a thing in my makeup collection that will go with this.' Kate grinned. "'Already thought of that.' She evoked a minor figment of Morgan's face, which hung in the air above the table like a hologram. Morgan could only use mirrors with great difficulty." There was power in a vampire's gaze, and the sight of her own eyes in her reflection could drive her insane. But Kate's illusion held no such dangers. Morgan peered closely at the alterations Kate had made to her makeup. The rose blush and violet eyeshadow had been replaced with subtler brown hues that were better suited to her new skin. Not bad, Morgan said, as a slow smile spread over her face. How long will it last? Kate shrugged maybe ten or twelve hours. A glamour like that isn't changing very much, so it doesn't take a lot of mana to maintain. I can recharge it for you later, if you want to wear it on the town tonight. Morgan's eyes lit up at the suggestion. A night out without being mobbed by would-be thralls? That sounds delightful. Thank you, Kate. No prob, Kate said. You can repay me with some information for this Halloway case. The vampire pursed her lips. I'll try, what do you want to know? Kate told her about the vision she'd seen in Misty's room the night before. The woman she was talking to is Sephra Hinlassos, Morgan said. She's from one of the minor noble houses, not very important in the grand scheme of things, but she and Misty have been friends for years. Her father's an ally of Count Halloway's in the Senate. Yeah, what's the story with that, anyway? Kate wondered. Holloway used to be the Senate Majority Leader, didn't he? What's he doing in Kaya's cabinet? Saving his political ass. Morgan smiled sourly. The man's got better survival instincts than a cockroach. Saw it coming when the progressives came to power in 97 and announced his retirement before he could lose the election. The next year, Kaya's intelligence minister stepped down and she appointed Halloway to replace her. But why? He's the stiffest old stick in the conservative party and a bacon on top of it. He's also a military hero, with a lifetime of public service, Morgan said, and he's got a reputation for being absolutely incorruptible. Which is true, as far as I can tell. She shrugged. The conservatives have been griping for years about the lack of mundane humans in Kaya's government. Halloway was qualified, he leaves his personal prejudices at the door, and he's old— even if his appointment turns out to be a mistake, he's not going to be in the job for more than ten or twenty years at most. From Kaya's perspective, that's a nice short-term trial run. Kate snorted. From Kaya's perspective, a hundred years would be a short-term trial run. What about the others Misty was talking about? Morgan leaned back and took a sip of her coffee. Zeke is Lord Ezekiel of House Kapler. As in Kapler Pharmaceutical. Morgan nodded. Zeke's father is the current Baron Kapler. He's been Holloway's mouthpiece in the Senate since the old man stepped down. Sheesh, don't these people have any friendships that aren't about politics? Funny you should mention that, Morgan said. Zeke's girlfriend is Julia Matthias." I knew it, Kate said. She's a throwback, right? She was born human, yes, Morgan said, frowning. But she hates the word throwback. Most of them do. I'll keep that in mind, Kate said, soberly. House Matthias is a major player in the Senate too, right? House Matthias is a major player in everything, Morgan said. Politics, banking, and aerospace, especially. Lord Matthias is the Earl of the Northern Marches, and the top nobleman in the Progressive Wing. He and Count Halloway are bitter rivals. Kate raised an eyebrow. Think Julia's trying to send a message with her choice of boyfriends? It wouldn't surprise me, Morgan said, her mouth turning down in an expression of distaste. On the other hand, she might be trying to secure her own future. Matthias is a big house, and Julia is nowhere near the line of succession. Unless she can get married off to a lordling with some good prospects, she'll actually have to work for a living. Heavens forbid, Kate said dryly. Any idea what all these little lordlings might have been doing together? Morgan shook her head. I'm afraid not, darling. With their resources and connections, they could be anywhere in the world. Kate took the last bite of her croissant, then tapped the fork against her lips, thinking, It sounds like Lord Ezekiel was the mastermind behind whatever they were planning. Maybe we should pay House Kepler a visit. Good luck, Morgan said. If there's one thing all of these houses share, it's their sense of superiority. If a common police detective shows up and starts asking questions about their internal affairs, they'll be very polite, talk you in circles, and never tell you a damn thing. Yeah, that sounds about right. Kate smiled thinly, then opened her jacket to reveal the special clearance badge from Imperial Intelligence. Good thing I'm not a common police detective. A familiar figure was waiting by Marcy's desk when Kate got to the precinct house. Good morning, Agent Takahashi, Kate said, bowing briefly to her in greeting. What's up and how can I help? The Shori woman cast a furtive glance around her. Hey, call me Yancey, okay? I'm not really supposed to be here. Kate turned to the dispatch officer. Marcy, did you hear somebody say something? Marcy took a deliberate sip of her coffee. Nope, must have been your wizard senses acting up. Man, I hate it when that happens, Kate said. I'm going to go use interrogation room A and try to recenter myself. Make sure I'm not disturbed, okay? Marcy's eyes twinkled. You got it, hun. Takahashi followed Kate to a small, soundproofed room on the opposite side of the bullpen. She didn't speak again until the door was shut behind them. Thank you, she said, earnestly. No prob, Kate said. She took a seat in one of the chairs and invited the bringer to do likewise. Now what's up, Yancey? Takahashi rubbed the back of her neck. This John Doe case is killing me. The commander's busting my ass to get a lead on the perp. But there's just nothing to work with. The things that live down there all hide when we're around. So even if they can talk, they won't talk to us. Somebody must have been there to cast the occultation spell, but I can't find anything that would tell us who it was, or if they were there when the guy died. Kate nodded. And you're not supposed to ask us for help because Janus doesn't want to lose control of the case. Takahashi let out a frustrated sigh. He's a good leader, but damn it, the man is impossible sometimes. Don't I know it. Prophet help you if you get stuck in a room with him and my landlady. Kate leaned back and steepled her fingers. Okay, so you need another angle on this. You said before that you didn't care about the evidence being admissible in court. Is that still true? The Shorey woman nodded. The things we deal with don't get trials, for the most part. Legally speaking, they aren't people. Yeah, don't get me started on that one, Kate said, dryly. I think we might be able to help you. Just a sec. She stepped out of the interrogation room and waved to David, who was pouring a cup of tea in the break room on the far side of the bullpen. The elf's keen eyes caught the motion, and he looked up, giving her a questioning look. Kay beckoned him over. David's eyebrows went up when he saw Takahashi seated inside the room. Kay quickly brought him up to speed. Can you go down to the crime scene with Yancey and ask your contacts if they saw anything? She asked. The elf narrowed his eyes and thought, I can try. He turned to Takahashi. Can you bring an escort with us? I don't like the odds going down to Hunter's Hollow with just the two of us. Takahashi grimaced. I'm risking enough trouble just coming here myself. I'd hate to rope someone else into this. Let me ask Kelsey, Kate said, taking out her phone. She's good people, and I think she'll keep it quiet if we ask her to. It's not like we want to steal the case. Five minutes later, it was all arranged. Kelsey would meet David and Takahashi at the skimmer lift at the north end of the hollow. I'll go try to get a meeting with Baron Kapler while you talk to your contacts, Kate told David. Maybe if I show up flashing an Imperial Intel badge, I'll get some honest cooperation out of them. Who are these contacts we're supposed to be talking to anyway? Takahashi asked. David gave her an amused smile. You'll see. And that's where we'll leave it for this week, folks. Who are David's contacts? And how can they help with the investigation? How will Baron Kappler react when Kate starts flashing around her new badge from Imperial Intelligence? And how is Malcolm Ardvalos involved in all of this? The mystery continues next week. Neil Gaiman said that this is how you write. You sit down at the keyboard and put one word after another until it's done. It's that easy and that hard. So let's see how I did this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,969 words this week, over the course of 4.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 934 words per hour. I broke my chain on Thursday night, after 205 straight days of writing. I spent most of that evening working on getting the print edition of Urban Legends ready for publication, and time just got away from me. But now it's back on the horse and back to work. I didn't make a lot of story progress this week, to be honest. The theme for the story collection I was working on didn't really speak to me, I picked up an Unfinished story that I started back in 2009 and worked on it for a bit, but progress was slow. I'm going to try to finish it this week, even though I missed the deadline for the anthology, but if I can't make any more headway on it after that, I'm going to set it down and go back to the Lost and the Least. I'm a little bummed about breaking my chain, but I'm really excited that I'm going to have Urban Legends in print, so I think it was time well spent. One important note for the next couple of episodes— I'm headed out of town the day after Christmas to go visit my family, and I won't be back until January 3rd. Because of this, I'm lining up the next couple of weeks of content now, so they can drop automatically while I'm gone. That means I won't be including weekly writing reports or feedback in those episodes, just the intro, the story, and the outro. When I get back, I'll let you know how I've been doing with my writing. And now, the feedback. Shy Revzin wrote in with this email. Hi, Chris. In last episode's feedback, you described Ball as lawful evil in the D&D alignment sense. To me, that seems off. Evil gains its strength by controlling and weakening others to feed it. Good gains its strength by empowering the weak and co-opting their willing support. Ball seems to adopt either approach as expedient. In the past alluded to in the negotiation table, Ball committed acts that the other gods view as atrocities. In modern times, he has adopted a different strategy. This leads me to think of Ball as a lawful neutral. He fights chaos by whatever means are available. For him, good and evil are mere strategic conveniences in his war with deep shadow. Contrast Ball's dedication to the upholding of contracts with the vampires, who focus on control and domination. That is the difference between lawful, if ruthless and arrogant, and actual textbook case lawful evil. Ball respects the free will of his followers, and co-ops their willing support in his battle to preserve the material planes. The vampires serve the blood, and are magically compelled both as a matter of course and as an article of faith. Just a thought. Keep doing the wonderful work you do. I found Shy's perspective on this fascinating so I shared his letter with the fans of Metamore City Facebook group to get others' reactions on it. Fester Adams said, I think he makes a good point there. But that is one of the problems of any alignment system, as it's arbitrary by its very nature, and won't be able to realistically cover all the actions a person might do. Going back to this story, I was surprised at the anger the other gods had at his action in sacrificing the one person to make the road— but there seemed to be no thought of the three soldiers he left to die so that he could get there and do said sacrifice. All four people sacrificed their lives, but because one was blood magic, while the other was fighting, one is terrible, 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 while the other is a commander doing what he must, and a shame, sure, but what's next? Sarah Testarossa added, Great comments. I was actually thinking that lawful neutral made more sense than lawful evil, but I know little enough about the alignment system that I couldn't have explained it well. Your additional point about the deaths is interesting. I'm sure they could rationalize it somehow, but not in a way that would satisfy me. What do you folks think? Is ball evil or just misunderstood? Send in your feedback and let me know, or join the conversation in the Facebook group.
1: Hey Chris, it's Adam again. I started a call at three in the morning in New Jersey because I just finished chapter three while trying to sleep. Right now, I'm really getting into the new story. Um, I'm definitely getting this huge Eldritch H.P. Lovecraft vibe from the Hotel Vard Rift situation and everything that's been going on out there. Also, including the uh, strange entity we got a small glimpse of at the end of this part. I'm actually really, really looking forward to see just what the rift is, where it came from, why all these things are happening, just exactly what all this magic is actually connected to, what caused the disappearances. I mean, it, it, it's something that I think I'm a lot more interested in as opposed to the side story, although I am sort of concerned as to how the death of that old guy is going to tie in with that because it's very apparent now that there's some sort of connection between the rift and the strange entity, especially since the entity realizes that they're getting close to answers and it's somehow tying in with the fact that Misty left on this trip with all the other nobles to go into the rift. So uh, you've weaved a very interesting mystery together and I like what you're doing and I am very excited to see exactly where it goes. And I'm curious to see how far we're gonna go with the whole Eldritch feel, although I might be wrong about that, so never. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. I'll definitely be calling in the future. And until then stay frosty. Bye. Hi Adam.
0: There's always been threads of Lovecraft's mythos running through the world of Metamore, from way back in the days of Metamore Keep. We can see that in Ball's Battle with the Void in To Walk in Shadow and Metamore Keep authors like Charles Matthias built whole huge story arcs around the battle with the Void, or as he called it, the Underworld. Incidentally, when Cephy mentioned Charles I, the Rat of Might, that's his character she's referring to. You'll see more about Clan Matthias later in Things Unseen. I'm glad you enjoyed the mystery around the Rift. I can't wait to see what you guys think of all the twists and turns that are coming up. Thanks for calling in. If you'd like to sound off about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash authorchrislester, and on Twitter as ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, as previously mentioned, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fresh new fiction. Until then, Merry Christmas, Good Yule, and keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.